Hello and welcome to Writer's Book Club. I'm your host, Michelle Barraclough, and each month I take a deep dive with an author into the writing craft and process behind one of their books. Today, I'm so thrilled to bring you my chat with a very talented crime writer who is also a really good friend of mine, the delightful Ray Cairns. She took time out of a very busy book tour to go deep on her writing process for her second novel, Dying to Know. Ray and I had a fantastic chat. We talked about the various conventions of the crime genre, so, you know, what readers expect from a crime thriller. And she talked about how she incorporated those things into the novel. So, you know, your red herrings, how you get the pacing right, how to make it unputdownable. We talked about chapter endings and how crucial they are in terms of getting the reader to keep turning the page into the next chapter and the next chapter, basically just keeping people up all night. Thank you, crime writers. I asked Ray also to read a few of those chapter endings so that you could hear them in action. We also talked about novel openings and Ray took me through the prologue of Dying to Know in a mini tension edit so essentially showing where the tension rises and falls and how she moderates the pacing so that was really terrific very hands-on I loved that we talked about her research which is very detailed and the importance of setting in a crime novel which I hadn't really thought about so much great stuff in this chat all right let me tell you a bit about the novel 12 years ago budding journalist Geneva Layton received a phone call that stopped her life in its tracks Her terrified sister Amber was locked in the boot of a moving car and begging Geneva for help. Amber was never heard from again. Since that night, Geneva's days have revolved around caring for her traumatised niece and nephew. Despite the unpredictable behaviour of their father, Hugh, and keeping the search for her sister alive. But the knowledge that it should have been her in the boot of the car and not her sister haunts her. When Sergeant Jesse Johns turns up with shocking new evidence about Amber, Geneva's world is thrown into chaos again. Desperate for answers, she becomes Amber's lone warrior for justice. As she edges closer and closer to the truth, she uncovers dangerous secrets that have the power to destroy everyone she loves. Honestly, it's such a page turner. You're going to love this book if you haven't read it already. Let me tell you now about Ray herself. Ray Cairns writes crime with heart, thrillers featuring everyday people facing extraordinary circumstances. Her debut novel, The Good Mother, was shortlisted for Best Debut Crime Fiction in the 2021 Ned Kelly Awards and longlisted for the 2021 Sisters in Crime Davit Awards. It draws on her background as a youth worker in Northern Ireland during the final years of The Troubles. And if you haven't read that, put it on your pile. In her past life, pre-being a best-selling author, Ray co-managed a crisis refuge for street children, worked as a program director for the Sydney Olympic Youth Camp, and she holds a degree in performing arts, which, as you'll hear in our chat, she uses in her writing process. I hope you enjoy my chat with the talented and delightful Ray Cairns. Ray Cairns, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me on. You are in the middle of a big publicity tour at the moment. Where are you? I'm in an Adelaide hotel room (laughs) and got the most funny setup here. I've got the the, uh, iPod balanced on the room service tray and the tissue box. (laughs) I'm sure you're not the only person who has ever done a weird arrangement for a a desk in a hotel room. You've got (laughs) 
events coming out your ears, where you're off to this weekend? Rachel John's Book yes. Club Retreat. So there's a bunch of authors and readers going down and, and we're chatting and we're doing, you know, speed dating for writers and, and stuff like that. So that'll be really fun and just meeting people. So last year, the Rachel John's Book Club were hugely supportive of The Good Mother. And so I thought it'd be really fun to go down there and meet some people, you know, who'd read the book. Now, listen, congratulations on this book. I am seeing it everywhere. I was at the airport recently. There was a poster. I have seen it on bookshelves. It's just all over the place. And I'm so proud of you. You've done such an amazing job with this book. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's always scary, especially second book, I think, has that kind of whole, oh, I don't know if I can... The one second one, and you kind of got that critic on your shoulder screaming at you. And because book one, you you don't know what you don't know, so you just kind of write and and make all the mistakes and have a lot of fun doing it. And then book two, you kind of go, "Was this a mistake? Is this a mistake?" So yeah. that was that was a big challenge. So it's lovely to have it out with readers and getting responses and. I just feel so lucky to be in this position. Yeah, I bet you must be so relieved to have it finally out there because you yeah. had to get this one out within a year, didn't you, after the release of the mother? Yeah, and that was a big difference yeah. too because it, you've got, you know, book one, you write for as long as you need mm-hmm. to and you edit it. to. I mean, there's so many versions of The Good Mother. I, I couldn't even tell you how many there are, whereas this one was like, you've got a year. Get, up, get going. Oh, gosh, the pressure, the pressure. Well, I would love to start with the genesis of the book. How does your brain work, Ray? You've got all of these elements. You've got the, I remember when you were doing the research and you said, well, Pete and I are off on motorbikes this weekend and we're going to meet some bikies. And I'm thinking, how is she going to weave this into the novel? Because I knew what basic premise was, <laughs> but it is just such a fabulous element. So, Tell me, where did all the ideas for Dying to Know come from and how did they sort of coalesce into the novel? Well, the the initial idea came from, I listened to a woman talk about uh, the impact on her family of her brother going missing. And she talked about how there wasn't one part of their lives it didn't touch. And I got really interested. Most, most missing person stories are about the investigation when a person goes missing. And I got really intrigued by the idea of, the impact on those left behind. So I, I, I kind of grabbed onto that and knew I wanted to write a story about, you know, the family left behind and the police officer, the impact on them in a, an unsolved missing person case and how that weighs on them when they've been within the families, kind of within the walls of their home and, and got to know them. So yeah, that, that really interested me. And then with the overactive imagination that I have, uh, we were driving to an event one day, my husband and I, and we were behind a Camry and it has that old style boot. And I just started going, what if someone's in that boot? What, what would you do? What would you do if you were in the boot of a car? Could you get out? Can you, can you, can you bash out the, the, the tail lights and wave to someone behind? You know, what would you do? And that kind of got me started on, ah, oh, that'd be a great place to start the story. And, and then I knew, yeah, I knew that I wanted to incorporate motorbikes because the thing that when my husband and I, because we only started riding recently, I don't ride, drive it. He does. I go on the back and dream and, and daydream and come up with stories. The glamorous pillion with the, you know, windswept yeah. hair. 
Yeah, the windswept head is like, what, you've got to wear it, a helmet. Yeah, the windswept. <laughs> you get helmet head in. Yeah, so we, when we went out riding, it was a surprise to me that the people that I, was, I met, because they were from all walks of life and all kinds of people, and that, that interested me as well. I was thinking, oh, wow, I didn't realise that this whole world was really out there. Um, because I also knew that, that like the outlaw motorbike scene had had this uh, really huge impact on, on innocent people, especially in Sydney, when their infighting had spilled onto the streets. So like the Melpera massacre and the Sydney airport brawl. And so I, I became really intrigued by that. Like what would draw someone to that lifestyle as well? And, and so that's kind of my jumping off point with the research. But before I do the research, I had like this, I make a decision about what the major theme of the novel is going to be. And so for me, it was the power of belonging, how, how belonging can influence our decisions, how we can make not so sensible decisions with the need to belong. And this goes from childhood, teenagedom, you know, 20s, 30s, right up until end of life stuff. So when you know, in a family, you might make decisions to belong in that family that you might, may not sit right with you or in a workplace, you might go along with a coworker when you don't necessarily agree, or you might not feel belonging anywhere. So you're drawn to join a community like an outlaw motorbike club. So I, I wanted to explore, I knew I wanted to explore belonging and that I also wanted to explore the idea of you don't know who you can trust. So, yeah, because there's a lot you can play with if you, if you just ne- never quite feel safe in any situation with anybody. And then I also knew I kind of wanted to, with the main character, the guilt and shame, how that influences decision making. So I know it sounds like lots of bits and pieces, wonderful. but I have all of that kind of in my head. And I knew I wanted my main character to be, she had to be very different from Sarah in my first novel. In the good mother. So in dying to know, it's Geneva Layton, and she's a budding journalist. And I wanted her to be gutsy and you know leather clad, where and you know riding a motorcycle. And but then I wanted to throw her into a situation that was totally opposite of that. And hence she has to live in Balmoral, which is a very wealthy, exclusive, fairly conventional suburb in Sydney. So. I knew those things, I was, and then I dive into the research. And it's funny, I'm not a plotter as such. Well, I'm not a plotter, but I kind of got all that prep there. Like, in a sense, it's more about understanding the big picture stuff for me. And then I go, okay, now I'm researching, and I throw myself into that. So I started with researching the biker seen I read a heap of biographies, both from the police perspective and the, the biker perspective, people that had done undercover, people that had left the biker scene. And that gave me a real insight into that world and and the people it within it and the power structures and, and all that was it, so that kind of gave me a start. And then I dragged my poor husband <laughs> out to any biker haunt I could find, from, you know, where they buy their clothes to the pubs they hang out at to rest stops really, and essentially just struck up conversations with anyone that would give me the time of day and Pete was great my husband was great at helping me with that but people were so generous with 
their ideas. You know, I tell them I'm writing a book and, and I'm just kind of interested on in what they think about the biker scene and what they think about outlaw biking and, and the police strike force raptor group and, and a whole heap of things. And so I spoke to people who were like us, weekend bikers, just kind of out and about. And then there were people that were more serious in the scene, who had all the gear and, you know, gosh, some people even had the gear for their dog, you know, and then also the people who kind of had dipped their toes into the outlaw biker scene. And then I struck gold and uh, met a guy who's an ex-rebel spiking member. And he gave me, oh, it was just like, it was gold. Because <laughs> I was able to sit there. He was a big talker, so I was able to sit and listen and just absorb how he spoke, the words he used, the rhythms the, of his speech. It was just, and then obviously the content of what he said. And he was just talked about why he was drawn to that lifestyle, why, you know, he doesn't want anybody telling him what to do. And if people can just respect that, he'll leave people be. And why can't they just let me live my life? It was so interesting because it was just a different way of looking at the world. And then he spoke about how Strike Force Raptor had, had impacted his life. He uh, owned a tattoo parlor and part of the, the laws that came out through Strike Force Raptor was you were no longer, if you were in a outlaw motorcycle gang you couldn't work as a mechanic you couldn't work as a tattoo artist so he suddenly lost his whole living way of you know supporting his family and I love the way you weave that into the novel as well through those characters you know I think that's the thing for me with writing is really wanting to understand who people are and why they do what they do without judgment because everybody has a story and everyone's living their lives and every person that's living their life is the hero of yeah, their own story. Exactly. And so talking to him gave me so much colour that I could add to the novel, particularly in dialogue and stuff. But it was, yeah, he, he was just, oh, I'm so grateful to him. And then to balance that up, I spent a day in a uh, police citizen's youth club because Jesse, my police character, is an officer in a police youth club and police citizen's youth club, PCYC. And I wanted to have a police officer who was more like the police I had worked with when, when I ran a uh, refuge for street kids for a while in Sydney. And uh, the police I met there were down to earth. They were trying to do the best they could. Yes, they made mistakes, but they were, they were humans, for humans, you know. So I kind of wanted to have that in a character as a policeman rather than the brooding policeman or the drunk policeman or all those kind of stereotypes. So I spent the day shadowing a guy out there and it was just so interesting to see him interact with the kids and, and all of that. And so that gave me a balance of character. And also I asked him the same questions. What do you think of Strike Force Raptor? What do you think of the Outlaw Motors Clubs? And obviously it was a very different perspective, but it gave me some understanding of, of where he came from. And then I read a lot when I'm doing that research phase. I want to be up on current affairs because I find if I am, they weave their way into my stories without me realising. So I do all this research. I do have a notebook for, the, for that book and it starts off with just like little notes of research or whatever. And I also have Scrivener. I use Scrivener so I will put pieces you know, of research into this research part of Squidward or photos. I try to visit locations to go, yes, this would be the right one and I'll take photos and just kind of spend some time there immersing myself in the sound and the, everything about the, the locations. That kind of visceral research is really important to me, the 
face-to-face interviews, the locations. I love, I love it. And I feel like it really informs my story. Yeah. It gives you that level of detail and those layers, I think is what makes it such a rich reading experience. Now tell me, did you spend any time in the boot of a car? I did. I got into the boot of my neighbor's Camry. Oh my goodness. So, and it's dark and scary and uncomfortable, as you can imagine. But you can actually get out. You can actually take off the cover of the rear lights. And I mean, obviously, I didn't smash yeah, it out. But you could have. Because my neighbour wouldn't appreciate that. But yeah, you can. And you can put your hand mm. out and, and kind of atta- attract attention behind, if there's someone behind, obviously. I mean, it's like how I, I block scenes. If I'm doing an action scene, I actually physically block it because you don't want, you know, three arms on somebody. <laughs> yeah. Someone coming from a direction they couldn't come from. So my poor husband suffers through that too. Your acting was your original sort of calling and your original career. Yeah, it was my career. So for people that don't know what blocking is, can you just explain that? Because I think that could be helpful for other writers. Yes, it's physically running through the scene. So if you say he pushed his right shoulder, you do it. And then you might say, oh, he he used his other uh, palm to give him an uppercut on the chin or something. And you need to kind of see, can you actually physically do that with your hands and your feet? So very quickly you realise, oh, no, you're like a pretzel trying to do that. So you rewrite and it's figuring that out. And it can use it for all genres. I mean, romance, you know, you don't want a phantom hand coming somewhere, you know, coming from somewhere. So it's, it's, it's a really useful way, particularly in a very high action scene, uh, to check what you've written works. Because I think as a reading, you kind of intuitively can tell that it's not working in an action scene if it's, yeah. yeah. So that's blocking. And I do use that and I'm very grateful to that acting background to help with that. My neighbours think I'm nuts because (laughs) I've got a big window at the front of my house and they just see me in my front room. Talking to yourself, giving yourself uppercuts. (laughs) Very entertaining. They set up popcorn and everything. (laughs) I love that idea of starting with theme because... Not a lot of writers start with theme. They'll start with the character or they'll start with the plot. But I love that. And that sense of belonging, as you were talking about that, I also thought how you'd woven that quite cleverly throughout all of the characters, actually. I'm thinking of Charlie, the little boy. He's desperate to belong mm. as well, isn't he? And he's. Yeah, or Lily. Lily, Lily is trying well. to belong in her yeah. peer group at school. And- yeah. So, yeah, that was really, that was the kind of starting point for each of the yeah. characters. How, who are they trying to belong to? How are they trying to belong? Or are they not trying mm, to belong? Mm. It's a basic human need mm. to belong. You mentioned that you're not a plotter, but you must get to a stage where there has to be some kind of planning. And you mentioned Scrivener. So, how does that look for you? I really don't plan the plot. Right. My first draft, I've got all that stuff in my head and I just try that my subconscious is going to bring it together. I had my first scene when she's in the, the phone call from the boot of the car. I had that very clear in my head. So I wrote that and then I just write chronologically and I discover the story as much as the reader does. I mean, I think Michael Robotham talks about that. You know, if, if, he's, if he's surprised or discovering the plot, then so will the reader, you know, that, that it, it'll be a surprise to them. I love that part of the process, that discovery. I mean, you make a couple of mistakes and stuff and you've got to go back. You know, it, that requires more work, I guess, in the editing. But it works for me. 
my subconscious does draw all that research together. And I have these things that come out that I go, oh my gosh, I had no idea. And I don't know, like I didn't know who took Amber at the beginning. I discovered that as I went through and I find that a really exciting way to write. I tried, I really wanted to be a plotter for this book. I tried really hard and I'm rubbish at it. I, I Something about uh, it doesn't work yeah. for me. I totally respect the people it works for and I wish I could do it because it feels safer. <laughs> I think. But, and, I'm, and I'm guessing that they don't have to cut as many words in their editing process and, and all of that. But for me, it works to do that kind of discovery of the story as I go. And then I'll do research as I go as yeah. well. Well, you're um, in very good company with Michael Robotham and Leanne Moriarty. I didn't know Leanne. I didn't know Leanne. Leanne didn't didn't either. Either. Yeah, it's like, the journey of discovery. But, you know, the writing is in the rewriting, so maybe that's where you have to do the, the plotting part. Absolutely. You know, and make sure that it all... Maybe that's the thing is that, yeah, the plotting comes, needs to yeah. come in later. Yeah. I mean, with this one, I, I wrote like some of it in, in the planning, like yeah, I had a plan and, uh, and it just, it wasn't coming together and it was mm. funky and mm. boring because mm. well, 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 I, I kind of wasn't discovering your editing process. Because I think you and I were, we'd been talking in our writers group about that Sophie Hannah gnocchi method that she talked about mm. in Pam Hook's rights for women podcast episode and I think we yes. thought let's give that a go and that's basically yes you're not writing the novel but you're just writing the outline or the structure of each chapter and writing like this happens then this happens then this happens then this happens chapter two this happens this happens this happens so you're basically just switching on your structural brain and then when you're ready to go in and write you can switch on your creative brain and just write but I think you and I both found that doing that, we were like, well, we know the story now. We've kind of written that out. It's not, it's boring now. I can see the beauty of it. And I think it would work for certain brains, but I found it yes. reduced my curiosity about what was going to happen. So yeah, it's interesting. Is And I know it does work for some authors. I know they use it and they swear by it, but yeah, you've got to have, just have that kind of brain. Absolutely. I think for me, and maybe it's the acting background, I don't know. But getting in that character's head and kind of having them reach decision points and moving through those decision points, I, I couldn't do that within writing. Yeah, like this happens, then this happens, and this happens because I wasn't in the, the, in the character's head. Because my one a book, it's definitely crime, but it's very driven by character and... Yeah, so, so I think that that's where I came unstuck in trying that gnocchi method. But, but I mean, I like you said, I know writers it works for beautifully. So it's it just you've got to find, this is the thing, you've got to find your way yeah, exactly. of writing. And as long as you, and you try lots of things and some work and some don't and that's, that's writing. And I think it changes book yeah, by book true. as well. So. And so you said you write in a linear fashion. So you just start from the start and then go right through. So how does your work session look yeah look, I write scene by scene but under deadline I, I was very focused on doing yeah I did about 2,000 words a day that was my goal some days did well some days not so you know and they balanced up a bit so I actually wrote 60,000 words in a month for this book I'd done yeah. so much research and thinking yes. about it and and I also yeah I had periods of time where I wasn't well so 
it's still bubbling in your head for those times. So once I actually sat down to do it, I had so much to throw at it. Writing is as much thinking and daydreaming, I think, as it is actually sitting at a desk and writing. That's me anyway. I need to do a lot of the dreaming and the thinking beforehand. And so, yeah, so I do sit down. If I get ideas for other scenes, because there's sometimes a scene will come to me, I go, well, that doesn't fit here. I just, I have a pile of flashcards and I just write the scene down on there, like a basic, and then I, I push it away and don't think about it again. And where that's really helpful is if I reach a point where I'm stuck, I can kind of flick through those and go, oh, that'll work here, you know. So I do kind of have that going at the same time. That's such a good idea. I love that. Yeah, and I guess also because I only write in one point of view, it makes it easier to write from beginning to end. And I, it's a very clear decision to write in one point of view. I think it, I want the reader in the head of, of the character making those decisions, like understanding the decisions, then going, well, what would I do in that circumstance? I want, I want the reader placed right there so that they're in that moral dilemma as well. And and because it it can challenge you in a very subtle way, but you know, like what you think? I guess that's the thing. You know, oh, I didn't know bikers would be like that, or I didn't. Yeah. So I really want them. I want it immediate, and I want them there. In in so writing in that uh, close third person point of view and only in one, I think helps me with that, and it definitely helps with tension because the reader's discovering stuff at the same time as the character. And I don't have like a, the antagonist character revealing details that the main character doesn't know. So, which kind of has a bit of a disconnect when you're reading. I mean, I love, I love those novels. Don't get me wrong, but this is a decision I've made for mine so that you're, you're there and you are only discovering as, as she discovers, as Geneva discovers things, because then you can have an emotional reaction to that as well, the discovery. And, uh, so yeah, I, I think that helps me, uh, in writing. Chronologically. Yeah. And so yeah. I wasn't going to mention the novel that you're writing now, but just quickly, you're writing another novel. And is that in the same third person, deep point of view, close, close third person? Yeah. yeah. So this is, this is what works yeah. for you. So sticking with it. I would like to talk about openings because they're pretty important, aren't they, in a crime novel? Crime thriller readers really just want to get hooked. Are there any conventions associated with that crime thriller genre in terms of how to start the novel? Look, I think you have to even start with the crime or a crime. It might not be the major one. Or you have to have foreshadowing of a crime coming or or of danger. And you have to have that pretty quickly. So, you know, there are a few ways that that seem to happen within the genre of doing that. And sometimes you just in a police procedure, we might jump straight into the crime and then, then you do the investigation from there. But, you know, there are so many genres. You can do it all sorts of different ways. So prologues are often used, but I know they can be a bit controversial, but I think if they're done right, they work. But you as an author have to know exactly why you're doing a prologue and it can't just be, well, I can't figure out another way to do backstory. Yeah, there has to be a real, real point. So for me, with Dying to Know, it was very much about the reader needed to know about the, the initial abduction, but I wanted it to be immediate for them. I wanted them to experience the, the trauma of that, which I'm not going to get in dialogue talking about how what, what happened 12 years ago. Okay, so that was my decision to do a, a, a prologue, but 
very immediate and very in the moment and then the novel jumps. So as a, as a writer, you have to know why you're doing it and it has to reveal only essential detail. You don't get to kind of slip out of stuff. <laughs> and essential character detail, essential kind of that backstory. But yeah, you've really got to be, you've got to be able to almost justify why you're doing it. So with this prologue, because it is so tight, and, and I know that you had this beginning in mind, when you first wrote this prologue, was it as tight as it is now? Like, did it really come out that tight or did, was there a lot of work that you needed to do to really get rid of any of that fluff or backstory or stuff that had crept in? So the, the action part of this, so what it has, it, the, the first few pages are set up of the relationship between Geneva and her sister Amber and the dynamics of that. And then Amber's husband, Hugh, isn't in the scene physically, but his character comes into question during those first couple of pages. I had to work very hard on that because you've got to kind of introduce the reader to the characters but in a way that's not, she has blue eyes and yes. brown hair and or whatever, you know, it's more getting a sense of characters. So, and how they view the world and how they describe something around them, what they notice in a room, what they notice about someone else tells you more about character than saying, I've got blonde hair and blue eyes. So those couple of first couple of pages, I find the action stuff. So when we get into the dialogue and the action, so essentially you've got those first few pages, then, then the police arrive at the door and Amber's handbag has been found on the seat of her car in a car park behind a shopping centre with a door open, there's no sign of her. So they're coming to do a welfare, they're coming to the house to check, is, is Amber okay? And Geneva's there looking after her four-year-old niece and her, the Charlie is the baby. And she opens the door to the two police officers and kind of that's where the action begins and then she receives a phone call and that's where it really wraps up. That prologue, it has to do a lot of heavy lifting, doesn't it? Because it's also setting up Geneva's character arc in some ways. It, yeah. It's basically showing us what she wants, not what she needs, yeah. but what she wants from her life and how she thinks her life's going to go, which, you know. Hopefully, being a crime thriller is all going to go pear-shaped, and it does. So it's, yeah, I can see why you would have worked on that a fair bit to make sure that all of that got across to the reader. Yeah, so that information part of it, I had to work very hard and tighten it and, and do a lot there. But once we hit the action, no, that, that kind of is fairly much, the, fairly much the same as what I originally wrote. Another opening that comes to mind is that Jane Harper opening that everybody talks about, The Dry. And it's the same kind of thing, you know, yeah. just putting people straight into that action with yeah. that immediacy. You are there and you created that as well. You you are there. I loved that. Thank you. My gosh. Because that's one of my favourite prologues, her one. So clever. So clever. So speaking of convention, what other kind of rules of the genre were you conscious of needing to follow? Are there any rules that you sort of need to follow? Do What do readers expect? Well, first of all, there are crime encompasses a whole heap of subgenres. Right. So you've got thriller, you've got police procedural, you've cozy, walked uh, through mystery. You know, well, there's so many different kind, of, and each of those has their own conventions. So, how would you describe what's yours? Is yours crime thriller? Is that correct? Mine's a crime thriller. Yeah. There's a bit of police, but there's not really any police procedural. There's it's not police not, procedural. It's no. not focused on the ins and outs of the police no. investigation. And that partially is because my main character is not a police officer. Right. So I have a police officer in it and that has influence, but it's not a police procedural because it's a 
and every person investigating the crime. But it's not co- that's usually cosy, but this is not cosy. So that's where the thriller comes in. And the thing with thriller is it has to have, so you, you have a, a crime story going on, but there also has to be a, a bigger effect on the community, is what I would say. So the consequences of the crime. And it might not be the initial crime, but, you know, once you get to solution, you realise. So, so say in The in the Good Mother, it was the, the threat to, like, so, so you had her trying to save her children or protect her children, but there was a threat from the IRA to the wider community. That's an easy way of describing it without doing spoilers for this book. So, but that's a thriller. So I, I guess, look, really basic, pe- readers expect a... A foreboding of danger or a foreshadowing of danger. They want a crime. They want a detective of some sort, whether that's an every person or, or an actual police detective or a dog or whatever. It, you know, it's got to be an investigator. Then they've got to uh, investigate the crime. There's got to be clues. There's got to be red herrings and a solution to the crime. And then ultimately, uh, like a restoration of justice and order and I think that is what is the appeal of reading crime to many people because you watch the news and there's horrible things happening and it's almost unbearable to watch because you don't know there's ever going to be a resolution in a crime novel there is a promise that you will hit a resolution unless the crime novel which can also be about which is actually the act of a crime so it can be from the criminal's perspective and then that becomes a whole difference so instead of the investigation you've got the actual doing of the crime, then, then you have them maybe getting away with it at the end, not, not, you know, not being brought to justice. Mm. So, but essentially you have to have those elements in there and you have to, the reader has to be able to know at the end of reading that they could have solved it. Right. You can't trick them. You, you can't, can't trick throw them. a new character in at the end that the, the, the villain, the villain. That they could never have guessed or, and there's got to be little clues dropped in. So if you could reread it, you'd go, oh, how did I miss that? You know, that kind of thing. So as a writer, you've got to be very aware that they're there and make sure they're planted. But it's so hard, like how the touch of that, how how heavy-handed do you go? And it's a really interesting process in the editing with those because sometimes your editor will go, oh, I think you need to go a bit harder with that. And you're like, oh, but I don't want them to guess. And, and it's really interesting with readers now because I get all these messages and they're going, Oh, I knew it was this person, but I had no idea of this. And I, oh, no, I had no idea. I thought it was this. It's a, a, a tightrope of kind of having those clues dropped in there. Yeah. So, and the other thing is the whole uh, Chekhov's gun thing, that if there's a, a rifle on the wall in Chapter 1, it absolutely, by Chapter 2 or 3, must go off. Now, I don't know that it has to, has to happen in Chapter 2 or 3, but if you have a gun in a scene, it has to come back. Yeah, at, at in, some yeah. point. Yeah. The noticeable details have to be integrated into the plot. So, And that's pretty important, otherwise people get very cross. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah in crime, in crime, they're very specific. And then there's a whole heap of things. Setting's really important in all crime novels. It's a big part. I mean, you've seen that very much with the rural noir, the, that whole whole thing, but all crime novels. We think of Swedish noir. It's the swatting. They actually start to describe novels through settings. So they're very important because I think they give you a chance. Crime gives you a chance to throw somebody into the worst day of their life and really test their mettle 
right? So that's why I love to write it because I want to understand why people do what they do. And if I can throw them into the worst days of their lives, I'm going to see who they really are and it might change who they really are. So you've got that, but setting gives you a chance to to put heat on them in a different way or have a real contrast. So in this novel, I've got a motorbike, leather-clad, independent young woman roaring down the street of a very quiet street in, in Balmoral, you know, where the neighbours are horrified by her love of, of heavy metal. So, you know, it's a real, you can use setting for all those things. And setting can also be a character. It's a huge, it is, it's a huge character in the novels. Yeah, especially yeah. in your first novel, The Good Mother, having part of it set in Ireland was, it was so evocative. It was almost like a, a character in itself just because of... Yeah, Belfast, I actually thought of it like a character Yeah, yeah. as I was writing. So, yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, obviously some novels, they come to the fore more, but it's important, the setting. And you've got to have, I think, believable characters. Yes, with crime, you know, the plot's important. You've got to have the red herrings, all of that sort of stuff. But it's two-dimensional if you don't have great characters. You've got to have those characters. You've got to care, don't you? Like Michael Robotham says, you've got to care. All the great crime novels have amazing characters. But, Ray, this book is such a page-turner. And when I tried to analyse why, I looked at your endings. So we've talked about openings, but your chapter endings, you really nail them. What's your goal with a chapter ending? And is that something you consciously do as you write just because you love crime and you've been doing it for so long now? Or is it something that you would more fine-tune in the edit? Well, it, it blatant. <laughs> I just want to keep people reading. I think mm. I think what's expected of me is a page turner. So that's very important to me that you want that, yeah. oh, one more chapter. But it's the way I write. I do, you know, obviously I check it very much in my editing, but in that first draft, it's there because that's actually where I finish scenes, like where I finish writing for the day. I finish it usually on the end of a, a chapter because I want to have a question in my mind or an action that's happening that I can dive into the yeah. next day when I'm writing because otherwise I sit there and go, oh, <laughs> what happens next? So it's a way, I guess it's a writing tool for me yes. and it works with the chapters. So, and then in the editing stage, I do go through each chapter ending and sometimes I'll split a chapter or, or whatever if it's, you know, not quite working yes right and what do you have a chapter length that you try and stick to I actually really try to play with the rhythm because I think that helps it's like we don't talk about mm. rhythm in writing a lot and I, maybe that's my music background but in your sentence structure in your paragraphs in your, it that's what helps create mm. pace and tension is is the rhythms and so chapter lengths I mean I, back to Michael Robotham you know when he's at the climax of, of his novels He's writing one-page chapters, you know, so yeah, bang, 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 because he's got different points of view and stuff. It, it has that sense of, of pace. And, and so if you've got the same length in every scene and the same length in every chapter, there's a rhythm to that. And in some genres, that would work really well, not in crime, because there, you want pacing, you want, you know, especially in a thriller, you need pacing. And that the change in the length helps with that. I'd love to read just a couple of examples of your chapter endings because I always think people get a lot out of hearing the actual examples. Do you have a couple that you could yep. share with us? Yeah, sure. This is early on. It's just the last sentence. There was no way she would let that man back into their lives, not after last time. I have to turn the page and read the next chapter. Why won't she let that man back into her life? What happened last time? <laughs> Can't reveal all the backstories straight away, you say. So it, 
it's teasing out and letting them know that there's a history there. But yeah. Um, give me another example. No one further along. Wood slid against wood again, and then the second man exited the house. The front door slammed, a lock clicked, and a minute later the Harleys rumbled to life and roared away. Jen's pulse hammered in her ears. She didn't move an inch. I hated this. I could feel this. It was so tense. Jack Heath sent me a message yesterday going, it was so tense. I feel like I need... Yes, perfect examples of chapter endings there and age-turning chapter endings. So earlier I mentioned your dialogue. I think this is something that obviously comes naturally to you because you really nail it. What is the secret to good dialogue, particularly in a crime thriller like Dying to Know? Tell us all your secrets. Do we need to go and get an acting degree? No. No, you just need to listen to those around you. Honestly, like really listen. Sit down. I I immersed myself. I spent hours sitting in a cafe, like a, a bike cafe, like a bike stop, and just listening to the conversations around me. So I'm a shocking eavesdropper, okay? But I'll make notes. So, you know, maybe things that they've discussed or things that you're not expecting. Like there's a scene in there where they're talking about their cholesterol levels. And that, I actually drew that from, so, because it was like, what? Because <laughs> you know, biker types of it talking. It was just really, yeah, it was a contrast. So listening, but I think I'm going to bang on about rhythm again, but listening to the rhythm of their, their words, and like the words they use, the actual words they use, but the rhythm. Everyone talks differently. They're full stop land in different places and they have different lengths of sentences. I'm generalizing, but many, generally men will talk uh, in much shorter, snappier, direct sentences than, than women will. And I think if it, you can't see that in dialogue, it doesn't ring true. If a man is waxing lyrical and, you know, they can, but you've just got to make it work. You've got to be very aware of that difference. And then that has to be built into the character that that's how they talk time do they waffle do they choose their words carefully yeah so i think that listening to the people around you even listening to like news programs where they interview somebody where someone's talking under in a stressful situation listening to that can help and then the other thing i do is i read all my dialogue aloud because as soon as you do that you hear it you go, oh, that sounds wrong. No one would talk like that. No one would say that. That's, you know, over-egged or whatever. You know, it's, you can really hear it. And the other thing you can do in Scrivener, and you can do it in Word as well, is, is have the computer read back to you. But obviously you're not going to get the kind of musicality of voices in that. So it's time-consuming doing that, but it's worthwhile, I think. Yeah, your dialogue is is so polished. Anyone that is interested in dialogue could jump into any page of this book and just see how it's done. The other thing I noticed as well is you don't use a huge number of distracting dialogue tags, but you use enough to center us. When I'm reading a book and I have to go back a page or two to find out who's saying what, because they haven't used dialogue tags and the mm. characters aren't differentiated enough for you to be able to tell who is saying what. Even though you've got a huge amount of mm. dialogue in your book, I never had to do that. I always knew either from the rhythm of their oh, speech good. or just because you put enough dialogue tags in there that when I say dialogue tags, people, I mean, you all know, he said, she said, blah, 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 to know where I was. Mm. I never felt lost. 
I'm going to say that that was very much my editor helped me with that because I initially wanted to write in deep point of view and deep point of view has no dialogue tags. You do it through actions or, or yeah, but it's, it is such a skill to be able to do that well. I mean, uh, Pamela Cook does it very, very well, the deep point of view. I, I had to learn to pull back a bit and go, no, it's more like, especially in big, lots of people in a scene, you just, you don't want the reader distracted by, oh, I don't know who's talking. I've got to go back two pages because they're going to lose that tension. So it just throwing in a he said or she said that they don't, the reader doesn't tend to notice them, but they just know they feel safe. They know where they are so they can be immersed in the story. The second you take them out of the story, you need tension and base. And so, yeah, that was, that was very much my editor taught me to do that. Uh, on book one, you know, I added more of those in. And, and then even in book two, she was like, no, you need more here. But that, that, that's a, a really strong part of the editing process is making sure that all works. Aren't editors wonderful? They can just take something and make it extra shiny. Oh, editing makes a book. Your first draft, you have a story. Yeah. But editing makes it a novel. You, you know, the edits you do, your edits, your editor, you know, the feedback your editor gives you, all that, that's what makes a novel. And it's a lot of work and it often takes a lot longer. Well, for me anyway, you know, I could do 60,000 words in a month, but the editing takes a long time because that's when you're refining the story, yeah, and, and making sure those things that you wanted are in there. So with the editing, were there any other major things that had to happen with this novel in the edit? There wasn't a lot structurally other than I had to tighten it. I had to lose a lot of words, I think. And my very first draft was 120,000 words, which I knew was too long. And I cut a whole subplot about Hugh's father that was there to bring that down. So that was my biggest challenge in the edits. So I think with editing, what works for me, so before I hand over to my publisher, I have very clear ideas of my goal of that particular edit. I don't try to do everything at once because I think you just get, one, I don't think you can track stuff, but I don't, I don't, I think you get lost in it. So with me, I start with a, a plot and logic edit. So does the plot work? You know, is there logic in it or is it a mess and I need to change? And that's when I look at, have I got, you know, backtrack? Have I got red herrings in there? Have I got enough clues? And it'll just be a note, I need to plant more here or, you know, this one's a bit obvious or whatever. So, I, And I make sure that the reader is oriented to time and place in each scene. That's one of my weaknesses. And that comes from between book one and book two, I'm diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. So I can no longer, so my first book I hand wrote and then I put it into the computer. I can no longer handwrite or type for long periods. So, and that first draft requires that. So I had to teach myself to do speech to text. So my, when I say I did 60,000 words, I did it speech to text, which is definitely faster, but it took me about three months to train my brain into it. It was very clunky at first because it's like almost you're connecting different synapses in your brain, I think. I remember when you were going through that and it was, uh, you would come, come in and say, oh, oh, was not convinced I could do it. There are a few dark nights of the soul there. That's yeah. like you pushed through, as you always do. But I had to because otherwise I wasn't ever going to be yeah. able to write again, mm. essentially. 
But what I found in doing that was my dialogue was great, but I had a lot of it and I didn't have enough scene setting and I didn't have enough of of placing the read they knew where they were. Then my second edit was a slash and burn edit. What can I cut? That was when the second plot line came out and that's when you, you kind of really getting rid of anything that's not important to the story. And I did that again when I, I got it from my editor, but I had, yes, I'd, I'd done a lot of that. And I, that's also where I track the tension in the novel. So I actually use the Maggie Lawson le- method. I, she just, you essentially, you do a dot if there's a bit of tension and then you might go into a line if the tension's increasing and then it might be a dotted line and then it might become a completed line. I don't do it for the whole book, but I do do it for the sections that I know are important, just so that it's like a very clear visual representation to me. Oh, wow. Okay. That's just all aligned. I need to have some breathing moments in there or, oh, that never fully builds. That's interesting. Okay. So can you take us through that, not to put you on the spot or anything, but with the prologue, for example, would you put a dot where the police are at Amber's house talking to Geneva saying we found her bag. Yep. So you put maybe a dot there and then she gets the phone yep. call. So that increases yep. the tension. So you'd be doing a line down there saying yep. the tension's increasing. And then, so that would become dashes. And then and dashes. then when Amber tells her she's in the boot of a car, it becomes a line. But then it, yeah, a line. You know. And that indicates highest tension yeah, level. Or, or a flare of tension and then it might just go back to the dashes again. Have a breathing space. Maybe we could read that. You could read that, Ray, and we could learn from the prologue. Would you mind? Yeah, of course. Happy to. So just to orient you, at the beginning of the novel, the police have arrived at the door and the handbag's been found on the seat of the car and she, the Geneva has no idea where she is. Okay. The ringtone programmed for Amber's calls to Keela Blared from Geneva's phone. Oh, thank God. She leapt to her feet and answered, Amber, where are you? The police, Jen, that you? I can't see properly. The screen's blurry. Anne, are you okay? She covered the phone and whispered to the officers, Something's not right. She's slurring her words. The sergeant turned away and spoke into his two way radio while the constable stepped closer to Jen, put her on speaker. Jen's heart hammered as they huddled around her mobile. Are you there? Her sister's voice wobbled with tears. Jen, I'm here. Where are you? I'm in a car. The boot. What the hell? Where? I don't know. We're moving. Jen forced herself to swallow. Who's we? I, I don't know. Oh, God. Fast, ragged breaths came down the line. Jen needed to be the strong one now. It's okay, Ams. Take a breath with me. She inhaled against locked ribs and the constable nodded and pointed to the phone. The police are here. They want to talk to you. No, don't go. Her throat burned. I'm not going anywhere. He's right next to me. Amber, my name is Constable Jesse Johns. We're tracing your phone as we speak. Can you tell me what happened? No. Jen's gut wrenched at the hitch in Amber's voice. Amber, the constable said warmly but firmly, I need you to tell me. I don't know. I, I think he hit me. I can't believe he hit me. Who hit you, Amber? Oh, man, his, his car, it was parked next to mine. It had to be him. No one else was around. Did you recognise him? No. Well, why is he doing this? I don't understand. You're doing really well, Amber. What does the man look like? Oh, I don't know. It was too dark. Is he tall or short? He was big, tall, but everyone's tall to me. His hair, face, 
He wore a black baseball cap. I think I didn't look closely, just circled around him to get to my car. Sergeant Maitland leant away from his walkie-talkie and put a finger up. We have a general location, but there's only one tower nearby. We need more information. Oh, God, what does he want with me? Oh, that's so good and so beautifully read, Ray. Gosh, that acting talent coming out. Thank you for that. So so talk to us about your dots and dashes for that scene. Okay, so, you know, there's dots happening. There's some tension that, that nobody knows where Amber is. And then the phone call comes in, and that would be a dash because that's like a moment of tension. She gets to talk to her, but it's also a, a hopeful thing, so it's not too bad. Uh, and, and then once it mm. hits her saying that uh, she's trapped in a bit of a moving car, that's when the line, the dots become connected into a line. And then uh, Jen gets her to breathe and slows things, tries to slow things down. So it's still tension, but we're trying to slow things down. And then when Jesse steps in, it becomes much more procedural. So there is tension, but there's information happening and is trying to draw information out. But each time Amber speaks, it ups the tension. So it becomes her speech is like yes, a line. because she's, she's panicked. Understandably, she's in the moving car. She's no idea what's happened. So the climax of her is, is the, oh, God, what does he want with me? So, yeah, it, it, it helped me to have that. Because if you have it a straight line the whole time, the reader can't stay with you. They need to be able to have a breath. So even sometimes you have sections where, you you know, I've got the character taking a deep breath with us to kind of slow things down. It also gives us hope as the reader that she's going to yeah. be fine, that their police have got yeah. it in hand. But then as Amber reveals more information and we get towards the end of that prologue, where as the reader we're oscillating between it's going to be okay, oh, my God, maybe it's not going to be okay, no, 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 it is going to be okay. Oh, but maybe it's not going to be okay yeah. because, you know, we're oscillating between the two as those tensions go up and down. Yeah, and you're experiencing what they, the police officers and Geneva are experiencing, listening to her sister and actually being very powerless. Because if it was just fully tense and moving towards, you know, a bad ending, well, we've got no hope, have we? No. We don't, you're not taking us on a, on a roller coaster ride. You're just kind of dropping us off a cliff and then it's over. So that's not fun. No. That's actually almost how I view writing the overall structure of my novel. It's a roller coaster ride. So, you know, the flat beginning, not flat, but you know, you're learning stuff about people. I mean, you, but our mind climbs fast, like it goes up. And then it's the build, yeah. the build, the build. And once you hit that, when the action really starts happening, because you kind of had this scene and then you go back to normal life 12 years later uh, with Geneva caring for the children and still no idea what happened to Amber. As you get to the climax point, well, not even climax, kind of like the middle of the novel, a bit, bit, bit past the middle, that's when you crest and then it's like you can't breathe. Do you know what I mean? Like that's <laughs> when you twist turns, it, things happening from different directions and you're just there for the ride and it's fast and it's, it, it drives you to the very end and then there's a, a sudden stop and then it's slow to the, you know, just to the parking area. Like a roller coaster. That's literally what happens, right? You get to the end and it slows down and you're like, oh, yeah. Well, what had just happened? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ray, this has been such a joy to talk to you. You've gone into so much detail. I think the listeners are going to get so much out of this, not just the crime writers, but any writers, because you've given us some really amazing techniques 
to use in any kind of writing there. So thank you very much for being so generous with your time and knowledge. Oh, you're welcome. I hope it was helpful. It was really helpful. Tell us about what other events you've got coming up if people want to come along and see you and grab a copy of the book. Okay, so the day this podcast comes out, I've got the 1st of June. I'm at Sutherland Library that night in conversation with Anna Loder, which I'm really excited about. I can't wait to, oh, to chat be with great. her because she, she's lovely. And then the following Thursday night, the 8th of June, I am at Berkeley Books mm-hmm. in Mona Vale with Bram Carroll, BM Carroll. Her new book is out. It's amazing. It's such a great thriller. And we're in, in conversation with each other, kind of a, a wine and crime night, I think it's called. I'm coming to that. I've booked my ticket. Oh, yay. I'm so excited. Yeah, there's something really fun about talking to another crime writer and just kind of yeah. bouncing off each other and hearing how their brain works because it's always interesting. And then I've got an event in Barrel in July. And there's actually a number of events. If you go to my website, which is just raycans.com, there's an event section on there and I, I update it regularly. So that's yeah, probably the best fantastic. place to find out about the event. And I'll put a link to your website and all of your socials in the show notes so people can jump in there <laughs> and find you. Good luck with book three. I'm sure we'll be in the weeds of that together at some point in our writers group. Thank you and much love to you and good luck for the rest of the book tour. Oh, so much love to you and thank you for having me on your amazing podcast. I hope you got a lot out of that chat with Ray. So many great writing tips in there. You'll find links to Ray's website and socials, as well as a link to buy Dying to Know in the show notes at writersbookclubpodcast.com. So who's coming up this month on the podcast? This writer has produced around 19 novels. I think that's what I've counted on her website. She's an Australian top 10 and USA Today bestselling fiction author, as well as an accomplished writing mentor and teacher. I'm talking about the wonderful Victoria Perman, whose latest novel, A Woman's Work, has just come out. Let me tell you a bit about the novel. Set in post-war Australia during the 1956 Melbourne Olympics, two women enter the Australian Women's Weekly Cookery Competition vying for the life-changing prize equivalent to a year's salary, which I imagine would have been quite a lot back then. Mother of five, Kathleen has no time for cooking competitions, but the prize could offer her a different kind of life. And for war widow Ivy, the competition means more time to spend with her 12-year-old son, Raymond. As the women explore new recipes, their confidence grows, and they realise that the competition offers more than just culinary skills. It provides a fresh perspective on life and the chance to confront their pasts. Sounds great, doesn't it? This novel's getting some amazing reviews. People are loving it. I'm about to dive into the novel myself and I invite you to grab a copy too. Have a read, send me your writing questions and I'll ask Victoria in this month's interview. It's a great chance to pick the brains of an incredibly experienced writer. As always, I'm giving away a copy of the novel with thanks to Victoria's publisher, HarperCollins. Entries are now open, so head over to the Writers Book Club podcast, Instagram or Facebook to enter. I've also popped a link in the show notes to purchase the novel, or you can pick up a copy wherever you get your books. A Woman's Work by Victoria Perman. Get into it. Thanks again for your company this month and I very much look forward to catching up with you next month or during the month if you want to connect with me on Instagram or Facebook. I'm always on there and I love hearing from you. Until then, have a great writing month. Take care.